Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. podcast this week I'm speaking to crime author Olivia Kernan. Olivia is the author of four Frankie Sheehan detective novels. Set in Dublin, the ongoing series sees DCS Frankie and her team investigating murders across the city where appearances are rarely what they seem. In Olivia's latest book, The Murder Box, we join the team as a seemingly innocent murder mystery game reveals a sinister connection to the disappearance of a young woman. Olivia, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Oh, I love being here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on here. You are a firm friend of the shop and have been since your first book came out. So it's absolutely lovely to finally get you on the podcast. I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, as I do with all my guests. You grew up as part of a family of six, just outside Kells in County Meath in Ireland. What was life like for you? Yeah, so County Meath in Ireland. So yeah, it was great. Really lovely growing up there. You know, it's a very rural area. In Ireland, the area that I grew up in is somewhere called Kilmainham, which is about two mile outside of Kells. And people might know um, the town of Kells from, say, the Book of Kells. It's quite a historical town. So, yeah, really kind of out in the farmland there. Meath is quite an agricultural county, so lots of farms pressed up together. And our house was on a patch of land situated in my uncle's farm. And he had a dairy farm. So we spent most of our, when we weren't at school or we weren't doing various kind of activities like athletics and that, we spent most of our time kind of playing in the fields and the woodlands around the house. So in that way, it was quite idyllic. But yeah, quite a rural upbringing, I would say. Yeah, it sounds pretty idyllic. It's funny when you look back on that kind of thing now as an adult, and especially with times changing, you know, to to think about children being able to live that kind of lifestyle. Now, obviously, some children still will be able to, but it's a lot rarer, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in the morning time, in the summer holidays, say, for example, we'd get up in the morning and you wouldn't return home for the whole day. You know, it was that kind of, can someone go out and call the kids from the fields, you know? And so we would spend a lot of time, we had kind of whole huts and that built in the woodlands and and you looked after each other, you know, the the neighbours would know where we were, etc. So, you don't have that as much now. Certainly with my daughter, who's quite young, there's absolutely no way the poor thing never gets beyond the garden, you know, so there's no way that I would let her do that. But we were out and about with our wellies on and down the fields from very, like as soon as you could be upright, you know. So that was lovely. And then we would sometimes after school help out on the farm. Our neighbours on the other side, they had sheep. So we would have to go over and help round up sheep. I remember I watched recently, um, is it Jeremy Clarkson's um, farming programme? Yeah. When the minute he, he said he was going to get sheep, I just put my head in my hands and I went, don't get sheep. <laughs> no. I feel semi-traumatised from having to round them up from when I was a kid because they're impossible to round up. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I love that. I put this image of you running around as a six-year-old. Yeah. Like it was cheap. Um, did you read a lot as a child or was it mostly outside? 
I always felt like it's kind of hazy when I really remember starting to read intensely. I always felt like I was a little late, uh, that I didn't quite get reading, I think probably till I was eight or nine or so. You know, I wasn't obsessive in in that way. And it was mostly a a primary school teacher. She just every Friday morning, this is going to sound again very twee, like my childhood was some way back hundreds of years ago. But (laughs) we we had to, I went to a convent school. So every Friday we had to knit, you know, learn how to be good little housewives. So we had, we used to knit for half of the year on a Friday morning and then on the second half sew. I'm still terrible at sewing. But while we were knitting, this teacher would read from a book. And it wasn't the books that we had as little, little kids, you know, like I did have the Ladybird books and things like that when I was a child. But there's always that little window, isn't there, between when you're very young and then kind of making that jump from that type of book to something that feels like a novel. Yeah. But she used to read these type of books to us while we were knitting our little hairbands or hats or whatever we were knitting. One of the one of the first books I remember her reading to us was Mildred D. Taylor's Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And as I said, we were quite young and I grew up, as I said, rural Ireland. There was no one of any other race or culture in my environment when I was growing up. And also it was the first time I'd heard a story that had such a firm historical setting. You know, it was like a a story from the past in the Mm -hmm. 1930s in rural Mississippi. So because it was rural, there was some things that were identifiable to, to my childhood. But um, the background of this family, Cassie Logan, who's the main character, and it kind of follows the story of the Logan family as they kind of navigate through the Great Depression. And so it's and it's post supposedly post-slavery, but there's still a lot of racism around. And so that was and I mean, a lot of racism around. It was shocking to me to, to hear that history. I think as a white person growing up in that, you know, I had no idea. So that kind of realization that that was something that happened in the world it had a huge impact on me. But more than that, it was just the storytelling, I think, that captured my imagination massively. You know, her, her sense of setting, like I could see the red dust on the road as the buses were going by the children when they walked to school. I could really feel that setting hugely. And it did make me save my pocket money and go and buy for the next kind of couple of books in the series after that. Um, So that was my kind of first experience of wanting to go out myself and get my own book and purchase my own books. And then I think before that, probably books like Enid Blyton's Adventures of the Wishing Chair as well. I, I had a big imagination as a child like I always feel like um I grew up in a family of six but I had imaginary friends I think as well I had numerous of them when I was a kid so I had this huge imagination and I think that the adventures of the wishing chair I just remembered that just wishing that that was something I could have this chair that would grow wings every now and then and that I could share with my friends and fly off to magical places and and then return safely home obviously that's the important thing with every story <laughs> back to status quo afterwards you know always always a happy ending it's fascinating though, when you talk about your teacher there and that experience though of you sitting there being a good little girl doing your knitting and sewing but the fact that that memory resonates for you so strongly it's that whole thing about the impact of the teacher obviously made the decision to do that in order to try and get you and your your classmates interested in books and kind of excited about story and just what an amazing impact that she's had on you I mean to be able to just 
think back and know exactly, pinpoint exactly where that flip happened. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. She had this real... She she just had that about her where it felt like, as I said, no one was very wealthy in, I think, most of the kids anyway. We're all kind of coming from, from rural backgrounds. But she had this kind of hold your head high uh, vibe about her and, and that she wanted to impress upon us, you know. And she she would say stuff like, if you can't afford to wash your uniform, get your nail brush out and kind of scrub the cuffs and, you know, things like that to help you yes I said that that kind of keeping your head high no matter where you've kind of come from and I think the reading was a big part of that that she probably realized I mean we didn't know we were only you know your life is normal as a kid you don't know and everything was as long as you're safe and warm and that you're fine but for her I think she was trying to do that first shaping of okay you know let's mold you a little bit so that you're able to go out and confront the world equally among other people as much as possible. So I think she had that understanding that perhaps a lot of us were perhaps, and I was lucky there were books in my house, but you know, many of the students mightn't have had that experience. So looking back, I feel like she did kind of embrace that duty and really wanted to make sure somewhere she was leaking into our minds or or, or that it was getting into our minds that there were other worlds out there for us to explore. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that. I don't know if I would have, maybe I would have, I mean, the, the urge to write, oh, I've always felt has been in there. So maybe I would have kind of found books to that level. But that kind of feverish reading you get as a child, I think was definitely triggered by this particular teacher. It's amazing. So am I right in thinking then that from that point on, you were a reader, obviously you'd gone and you'd saved up your pocket money to buy some more in the series. So throughout your teens, did you read a fair amount? Because so we, we see a pattern. We see some people will kind of be avid readers all the way through, or we see others where they'll kind of tail off during their teens when they discover other things and then come back to it. What camp were you in? Yeah, I think I was a big reader throughout my teens. I mean, I'm never quite sure exactly what that means, like is that chewing through two books a day or whatever. Yeah. But I, I definitely was someone who always had a book when I was going to bed. And sometimes it would be, um, I had a little, because we had such a, we had only a bungalow, so we had such a big house. So I, my bedroom was a, in a converted attic room upstairs. So I was kind of able to escape away a little. And maybe people weren't able to keep track on how late I was staying up reading. So I would put on my radio, you know, those little push button radios that we'd have up in the attic and I would read sometimes until, you know, two or three in the morning. And for a school kid, that's not good. (laughs) And I used to listen to be the station in Ireland that would play the evening called Romance Radio. So (laughs) it's just so tweaky. I used to have all my favourite songs that come on. So I'd listen to that and read until the wee hours. And yeah, so... So I, th- I think I was a big reader, if that's what a big reader is, but not not perhaps not like kind of obsessively talking about it. It was just something that I did. And I remember going through the phase of the whole Sweet Valley High books. And then I went through a phase of ghost stories. I remember just in my teens, just suddenly being obsessed with horror movies and ghost stories and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then I think as I moved more into kind of secondary school, because we were introduced to books like Wuthering Heights, and then I think Pride and Prejudice as well, we we're lucky enough to have that in the curriculum. 
Um, and I remember receiving the reading list for that and the summer, you know, you get your reading list first and then you had to go and get your books and getting the secondhand copy of Wuthering Heights, which by the time school had started in September, I had read about three times. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine who loves Wuthering Heights as well, she said, um, I just thought this was so funny. But the teacher was trying to explain to her how, you know, with Heathcliff, how he has this kind of bad streak and, and that and and she asked this friend of mine, well, what do you think of Heathcliff? And she just went, I love him. <laughs> the teacher's like, you're not supposed to be loving him. <laughs> but, you know, kind of, when you're a teenage girl, anything passionate, you're, you're, you're attracted to. So um, <laughs> <laughs> It sounds to me like you were a pretty avid reader. Yeah. Um, so after school, you studied anatomy and physiology before moving on to study chiropractic. Well, you moved to Wales to study. Yes, yeah. At what point did you move from Wales to Oxfordshire, where you're now based? I had, like, initially I thought I was going to move back to Ireland. But, yeah, I just didn't – I just liked the kind of way of life over here. And when I got a job in Abingdon, where your lovely bookshop is situated, and I went for the interview – and there was something when I arrived and I think I arrived in um, Didcot first and then got a taxi to Abingdon for the interview. But there was just something about Oxfordshire in general when I, when I got here. It felt, because it is quite rural, but it's just bustly enough. You know, you feel like when you're in your early 20s, particularly if you come from the countryside, sometimes you have the whole, oh, I'm going to move to the city or something. <laughs> you know, you kind of have that feeling like that's where your life should be pointing, at least for a period. Yeah. Um, but for me, like a big city, as much as I love London and, and even Dublin and that, they were just felt a little intimidating, I think, in some ways. But when I came to Oxford, it felt like this this very good balance for me mm. that had nice part of a city that wasn't so big that I wouldn't be able to find my way around although sometimes I still don't know where I'm, I'm going in the kind of <laughs> one-way systems and that around the various towns in Oxfordshire but also it's just the countryside it's just in my bones I need to have that around me so yeah I just kind of fell in love with I think Oxfordshire when I came here and very quickly and I knew straight away once I got that job I thought okay I'm definitely not moving home for a few years and then you know I met my other half and and we're we're happily here since so the rest is history Um, at what point did you start to feel like you wanted to put pen to paper you wanted to write I, I just as far as back as I can remember I think it's just always been a kind of compulsion to write you know and it's it's lovely now I kind of see it I don't push it but I kind of see it with my daughter now so she's doing what I used to do when I was a kid we're making little books out of paper and cutting them up and sticking them together and doing the front cover and putting a little story inside and I used to do all of that when I was a kid and I also kept journals like I do have a journal from when I was about seven and it is just literally today my grand died or something really kind of or my pet you know it's just you know obviously you only put in the bad news when you're writing a journal when you're a child you know everything you forget to write in when you've had good days it's only your urge to kind of go to pen put pen to papers when things are in in the doldrums um so I I do have journals from that long ago but I do remember writing lots of poetry some really bad bad poetry when I was even as a teenager I mean my brother used to have just have get so much material because I was quite proud of it so I would stick it 
<laughs> so when, it, when you know him and his friends would come along they'd be like oh there's my sister with her poetry <laughs> it was terrible poetry and then you know I was my poor English teacher and he was brilliant like he really you know as you say there's certain teachers you think they come along and they just hit at the right time and when I was in secondary school so this is obviously studying more for leaving cert so we're up to the level of almost A levels and I had an English teacher there and he was just so passionate. You know, it just kind of hit the mark with everything that I was feeling about when I was reading uh, Yeats or, um, as I said, Wuthering Heights. He just matched that in, in a way for a lot of students as well. But, you know, I just think he must have rolled his eyes every week because we'd have an essay question on a Friday that we were supposed to choose one title and write about it and then submit the following week. But I would do all three titles. <laughs> I think that I was great. I'm sure he was like for crying out loud. Stop giving me three essays of your drivel. You know, it was just, but that's, uh, that was the most exciting, you know, class. I was like, oh, we're going to get our essay titles to, to, to get to write have an excuse and actually be tasked to do it over the weekend you know so your classmates were all like for goodness sake yeah <laughs> stop as writing make now, it look I, bad yeah <laughs> I look back as an adult I think he must have just hated me so much <laughs> but um so it's always been there I think I remember watching is it David Mamet and he, he was saying that writing was like you know the way a beaver has like long teeth or, or like you know rodents that have long teeth and they, it's to gnaw you know it's it's a compulsion within them and I think that's probably similar with many writers is that it's it's not something necessary that you set out to do but it's just something that's within you that you have to to kind of let out yeah at what point did you feel like it was something that you'd be able to do for a living or, or did it just feel like a hobby for a really really long time yeah, definitely did feel like, you know, I did a lot of athletics as well when I was younger. And it was kind of, it felt like that. Oh, that's just something that I do. It didn't even cross my mind that that could be a career or, or that I could get published. And I did stop for a few years. I think probably when I was about, when I did finish school, you know, it felt like, okay, that not that nonsense, but that, you know, that's a bit of a pipe dream, you know, kind of put it to one side. And it wasn't until I, I came to Abingdon and I started working, I think probably just having that kind of security and sense of security when I started earning enough. It just suddenly reared up again where I was just like, I really want to try and do this. You know, I think I was good at it in school and I would like to be able to explore this side. It was, I guess, it's the realization that when you set your kind of cart on the track when you're younger, that you're not kind of committed to that single track. Your life can be numerous things. And I think that took a while to dawn on me. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that I realized that I could go on and pursue this whether I went on further than that with it or not it didn't matter but I it was something I enjoyed doing so I had a look on the internet for some short courses because I just thought well I was all right when I was in school but maybe I am terrible at it <laughs> or maybe I won't enjoy it which is the other thing and I discovered that Greg Moss, who's Kate Moss's, you know, the author of Labyrinth, the Labyrinth series, he was running some short courses down in West Sussex at the time in a beautiful college called West Dean College in West Sussex. So, you know, I was in my mid-20s, I had no other commitments and stuff. So headed down there for that weekend course. And I just loved it. It was just it was terrifying because we had to write a piece and then within 15 minutes kind of read it out. 
But it was just lovely to be in a classroom as well with lots of other writers who had that same passion. You didn't feel so much that you were on your own. And so that kind of just, again, lit the tinder for me. And it was really after that that I started kind of thinking, okay, you know, I could try writing a novel and I could move forward in that way. And eventually I ended up doing an MA in creative writing And again, more just for that sense of community and having other people around you who have similar interests. Because, you know, for people who are not writers, it must be incredibly dull when we start talking about characters and motivation and plot. And, you know, so when you meet another book person, another author and get to talk about these things, it's really lovely. And then when I finished the MA, I had completed my first novel within that MA. And this was way back in 2002. 10 or so or 2011 and I did send that out and got plenty of rejections but I did get a few bites as well but perhaps naively not really understanding how tough the industry does test you quite a bit I kind of went okay that's not good enough I mean I probably could have pursued looking back now I think god I did have interest in it but I just thought because it wasn't immediate yes we will take you on that it was a sign that things weren't good enough so I think that was a good idea though to kind of put it to the side And it was only really then when my daughter was born a few years after that, that I started writing in kind of the crime thriller zone or crime fiction genre. And I felt my writing had turned a corner. I I knew when I finished that book, I just thought, okay, if this doesn't get me through the kind of publishing hurdles, then I'm not sure what will. And luckily, quite quickly, that was taken on by an agent. So... And, it was and the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, well, not quite. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you now write full time. So at some point you made the decision to step away from your job. How was that as a decision for you? Because that's quite a big decision to take, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a few things culminated. And it was before I stepped away from chiropractic before I got my publishing deal. I was thinking of heading into perhaps teaching. And I had, in fact, I was actually... On the day I got the kind of first agent interest, I was filling in forms to apply for teaching. Because at the time, I don't know if that's still the case, but obviously because I have a science background, I knew that if I applied through teaching for either English or um, science, that there would be some kind of bursary or that to help kind of that transition, you know. Um, But it was just more physically that my job is very physically demanding. It was very emotionally demanding and psychologically demanding. And I loved all my clients and patients that I've seen over the years. But it just came up that I was signing the lease again for my business. And it was a 10-year lease. And I just thought... I don't think physically this is what I want anymore. You know, it was very hard on my, on my body. And so I kind of moved and I, and I had some other health issues as well. I unfortunately suffered an ectopic pregnancy and things like that around that time. So there were a few things with the writing and with my health and with feeling like I wanted to kind of sidestep out of that profession that culminated all within a matter of months and it kind of made the decision for me then and so then I had my daughter I think about 12 months or so after that and it was strange I thought I would be too tired to kind of sit down and write but I mean she was a very good baby I know this is not possible for everybody but she was very easy baby and mentally that that kind of feeling again of wanting to be able to create started coming on quite quickly you know about three months after 
And that's when I started, I sat down and started writing this novel. And so the decision, as I said, I was about to move into teaching. And then, the, you know, I started getting all this in, agent interest. And I thought, and I knew because, you know, this novel was my fourth novel at this point I'd written. So I'd been through the rejection treadmill. I knew that that was unusual. And so I just kind of held off on, on the teaching application. And I went, oh, this is this is different. And yeah, so so I was lucky enough to be able to head down that path then. That's fantastic. It's it's funny how things do sometimes kind of end yes. up yeah. working out. So now, now you're a full-time writer um, and you've published four books. Do you still make time or, or find time to, to read for pleasure or do you find a lot of it is linked to your work these days? I really try to. The to-be-read pile is like a source of guilt. It's this mix of feeling just massive gratitude because you're so lucky to get all these brilliant books and then there's oh gosh you know because you you're so aware of the publishing schedule so you know if you're sent to proof first of all for, for for writers like myself even you don't have an indefinite amount of proofs to send out so you know if someone has sent you a proof that that is a huge privileged position to be in but you also know you're on a timeline in that if they want a certain kind of feedback on the book before they go to print, then you need to read it quickly. And I'm the type of reader that likes to get really immersed in a book. I don't like to speed read. I don't like to kind of flick through the pages. So I am really slow as a reader, I think. And particularly if the writing is really good, it you know, I kind of want to kind of linger over it a little bit more. But I do try to make time. And certainly when I'm drafting, I'm right in the middle of um, writing my next novel now. That's when I really want to read other kind of genres and outside of what I'm writing. Just because I think it's putting ingredients in the pot, you know, you don't want to have the same kind of food going in all the time creatively. So obviously as a crime author, I get a lot of thrillers and a lot of police procedurals but my tastes kind of span much more widely than that I love kind of literary fiction love women's fiction and I do love crime fiction as well but it's just trying to keep that mix going that you're getting kind of um it goes into your head with different kind of plot structures different settings and different techniques from all those different writers so I try to make some time to do the reading that I would like to do outside of kind of crime fiction if I can yeah I've not really thought about that the fact that you probably pull lots of things from different books without even realizing you're doing it yeah. what was the last book you read so the the one that I'm reading right now and and it's just exactly for that reason is by Sarah Hall and it's uh, Madame Zero and it's not a novel it's a collection of short stories but she's a really visceral writer. You know, her descriptions, oh God, it's just the first in the kind of collection is called Mrs. Fox. And it actually won the BBC Short Story Award. Um, it's quite a long short story, like not Stephen King long, but, you know, it's not your regular kind of 2000 or so. But it kind of brings that kind of humanity and wilderness and nature. She's very good at that. And it seems to be a theme throughout a lot of her stories, certainly in this collection, of bringing what's wild in us as humans and what kind of pressing that wilderness and humanity up against one another. And so in this first story, Mrs. Fox is about a man and his wife. The wife kind of, she goes through a kind of metamorphosis 
into a fox. So yeah, you think that that's, oh God, that's a bit too out there. It's not, but it's just really absorbing, you know, and, and very feels strange and otherworldly, but also she does it so well and with such a serious note that it's believable you're kind of brought into that story and how he's coping. So yeah, her writing is very kind of muscular in that way. The style is is quite concise, which I like because I write usually in, in that kind of style too. So I, I quite enjoy that, that she, and sometimes she has these little plays on rhythm where she might have single word sentences and there's another story where the group of characters are walking through a cave and she puts the echoes in throughout the sentence, but it's all done in a very accessible manner. And I just think that it looks easy because it makes the reading very comfortable and the the right, you don't feel like the writers kind of inserting themselves in and kind of making things complicated for you. So it's all very accessible in that way, but still feels very literary and lovely. I said, you know, as I said, there's a, it just her writing just feels meaty to me or something. I don't know if that makes it sound off-putting to some people, but yeah. And you just as a writer, you understand how much she's worked to get that economy of language down and getting her imagery, you know, within a few words, really using her words carefully. I think I, I had a, an old writing tutor many years ago and she used to say you know your words are like golden coins you don't want to spend them willy-nilly you want to kind of save them up and kind of use them very carefully now you think that might be obvious to a writer but some you know sometimes you do want a flowery sentence yeah (laughs) but if you can I think it's better and a better sign of craft to kind of have it pared down and I think for that's the joy of short stories isn't it you know the fact that people can create such strong imagery and pull the reader in but in a very short yeah you know space of time short number of pages I think it's such a skill I, I talk about this a lot I mean it's not the same thing clearly but I've talked about this quite a lot with um authors that write children's picture books it's the same yeah. kind of concept in the fact that you have to get the message across but you don't actually have any words to do it and I think a lot of people think it's quite straightforward but I think it's far from oh yes I used to know quite a lot of picture book writers and And also you have to think of the spread, you see, because you have to think of the illustrations and what might go in an illustration. So you don't want, and that's another gift with illustrators as well, that they, you want to further the story, even with the illustration, not just have it doing exactly what the words are doing. So there is a definite science and art to to picture books, for sure. Yeah, things that people don't think about. So now I have a theory about people that read that most readers, a lot of readers have a book that has had a significant impact on them. It's changed their life somehow. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is that book? I think probably the one that really made me feel like I could write, even if I didn't know at the time that it was going to be something I could make a career out of, and was Maeve Binchy's Circle of Friends. And it, I just appreciate it more as I get older and go on. And because I look back at the writing, for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically a story of Benny Hogan and her friend Eve And they're from this little town called Knock Glen outside Dublin. And it's about kind of, it's almost like coming of age, but, you know, they're a bit older than that. They're heading to college or to university. And so they're coming from kind of small town, rural Ireland. 
and heading to the city. As I said, there is that kind of draw. So that was something I could definitely identify with that I felt was, oh, that's probably on my horizon. And it's about them navigating kind of grown-up problems, if you like, adult problems, that Benny, in some ways, I think at the beginning of the book, she it's not that she looks down on Nuckle and she's a great love for it. But perhaps she feels like it is a little too parochial and she needs to kind of move out. But the problems in both areas in Knockland and in Dublin begin to kind of echo one another. The same class issues, the same perspectives in some way kind of follow her to Dublin but she's really tall sturdy is the wrong word but you know she she feels quite heavy set character so she doesn't feel she longs you can tell she longs to be kind of graceful petite feminine but she's never going to be like she's kind of that capable character and she you know is uncomfortable with that side of her personality when she gets to UCD she meets the the kind of attractive Jack Foley, who is a med student from a more slightly middle-class family. Although Benny is from a middle-class family, but it's more rural. So, you know, there's this constant kind of trying to bring yourself up a little bit. But obviously, as the novel goes on, there it's about learning to be comfortable in your own skin and appreciating what's around you. And certainly Benny learns that. But It's just an incredible feat of a novel. And I just think when I look back in it, the amount of work and world building that Binchy has done with not Glenn, first of all, every single character has, and again, not laboured, but has the most brilliant and fleshed out backstory. And then even when we go into UCD, that whole world, and it's set in 19, I think it's late 1950s Ireland. So that whole world is illustrated so well in the book. And each of the characters as well, like even just Eve, Benny's friend. So we're given like her backstory. She was brought up by nuns because her mother, who was Protestant, had had an affair with the gardener or something like that. So her Protestant well-to-do family chucked her out and then the Catholic nuns kind of took her in. So there's like this kind of nod to the politics in Ireland as well throughout the novel. And the viewpoints of the characters too. So, you know, even Eve has that really fleshed out background, even though it doesn't doesn't come in massively in the story, but it does touch against the main plot occasionally. But it just made me feel, because Maeve Binch obviously is a woman and there was just this beautiful big novel and about women mostly as well. There was something about it and something warm about it that made me long to do similar, even though I end up writing thriller fiction. But, you know, it just made me want to put pen to paper because there was something so comfortable about that story. And again, yeah, just seeing a female author at that time in Ireland writing, and she was on every Irish bookshelf, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, any any house you went into in Ireland, there's definitely going to be a Maeve Vinci on the shelf there somewhere. But yeah, I think if people haven't read that one yet, definitely get on it. Yeah, she's a great author. She's someone that my mum had in our house as well. So I read some Mayfitch quite early on as well and also really, really enjoyed them. It was, it, they were the novels that you kind of stole from your mother's bookshelf, weren't yeah. they? That, made, exactly. you know, that, kind of, that kind of way. So. so we can't have you on this podcast and not talk about your books and we've touched on them already but for anyone who hasn't discovered Frankie and the team yet can you describe the premise of this series of books that you've created please 
So Frankie leads the Bureau for Serious Crime in Dublin, which is a fictional kind of bureau that I've created where there's a team of highly experienced detectives work together on cases of national interest. So kind of murder cases that might hit the press that need more resources perhaps than other guardy departments might have. And they all kind of have it in-house. So Frankie leads that team. And in the murder box, she's normally very capable, Frankie, and very in control. But in the murder box, it's around her birthday and she's failing quite badly to get the reins on a case where a missing celebrity. So again, it's kind of of national interest. This kind of nation's sweetheart has gone missing, Teddy Dolan. And despite the fact that he is famous, there's not a trace anywhere of him. And she can't get a foothold in this case at all, which is disturbing her greatly. And not only is this a celebrity, but he's also the commissioner's nephew, her boss. So there's kind of a double pressure coming from both sides. And on one evening, she's working with her partner, Baz, on this case, um, trying to get a thread somewhere. And her partner says, oh, what's that box over there? And she'd received this box the day before. And it's a murder mystery game. On any other day, I think Frankie would roll her eyes and push it away. You know, she deals with these cases in real life all the time. But I think because she's so kind of despondent about her work at that moment, she opens it up with her partner and they begin to start playing the murder box. And when she opens it up, you know, there's a kind of a post-mortem report. There's a real case file. There's some pieces of evidence as well. And a murder mystery revolves around this missing 22-year-old, which Frankie assumes obviously is fictional. It's a murder mystery game. But it's not until the next day when a woman comes in and starts describing her missing flatmate that she begins to connect the dots that actually she's been sent a real case in the guise of a murder mystery game. And shortly after, she realizes that she's not the only player. There are other players also trying to solve this uh, murder mystery game. So that's where she's at at the moment. (laughs) The murder box, I just absolutely, I mean, I, I enjoy all of your books, but the murder box, I really, really loved. I just thought it was so clever because it, like you say, there's this element of games, this whole community of people that play these things and and it's a massive part of their lives. I found it really interesting in your book, the detail you went into about these interactive games. Um, What kind of research did you have to do on that aspect of the book? I did quite a bit of research on it. I mean, I'm not a gamer myself. So the springboard for this novel was a murder mystery dinner I'd gone to a few years ago, I think shortly after my first book was published. And also kind of that childhood longing. We used to play lots of Cluedo and parlor games like Murder in the Dark and things like that when we were kids. You know, we didn't have iPhones, so we yeah. to play I used to love Cluedo. Yeah, I still you know, and I think that's the thing. You know, when you're writing crime fiction, there is that kind of longing and drive to get through the book is to solve a mystery or a puzzle. So there, there's obviously that attraction there. So I did have to do quite a bit of research. I listened to quite a few podcasts on gaming. And I wanted to kind of bring that into the novel a little bit. So I created a character, Camille Forbes, who is a gaming expert, but also the philosophy of games and the psychology of games. She kind of understands that, which I found quite fascinating. Just things like how things in games had to be kind of representative of the real world. So I think in in the murder box, one example was, so if you were to use a weapon, that that obviously might be in the form of a card, um, for example. So it's just that kind of 
psychology of that jump of the mind of making something that's real and then bringing it into the, its representation on the board and how you do that and how all the players kind of buy into that psychology for the game and then obviously use the weapon you tear the card up. I mean, I, if anyone was like me and Cluedo, no, you didn't write in the little forms. You wrote in a separate notebook, so you didn't use up all your forms, you know. So I'm sure there are gamers out there who do not tear up the card. But, you know, theoretically, if you use the weapon, you're supposed to tear up the card so that it's used. And again, it's just it's just thinking about those actions, how they represent what's supposedly happening in the kind of real world of the, the fictional world that the game has built and I enjoyed that kind of angle of it, of looking at that, okay, so here's the game, which is completely fictional, and here's how you move your pieces, but each of those pieces are representing something that's real, you know, like tokens representing real money and things like that. So I found that kind of psychology very interesting. It might be really dull to other people, but I found that really interesting, that kind of, I think they call it abstraction. So that kind of making that jump from real world into fiction. And I really wanted to try and bring some of those elements into the novel. So the way I did that was by inventing this character, Camille Forbes, because obviously Frankie won't understand those elements. So she needs to explain to her that whatever action she takes in the murder box could have a real effect on the world that the creator has built. So therefore, she has to be cautious as she's going forward. So, yeah, I enjoyed looking at that kind of philosophy of gaming and that. Yeah, it was very, very clever. And in addition to, we talked about the fact that there's basically these two storylines that are running in parallel, the celebrity that's gone missing in the murder box. But also there's an additional underlying storyline which relates to Frankie's relationship with her partner, Baz both professionally and personally. I'm always fascinated with how characters develop in the author's mind. So did you know when you started this book that that's where they'd end up at the end of the book? Or does that happen as you're writing the book? Yeah, I'm someone like I have a sense of what might happen. So I felt that this story was going to be, you know, each of my books, like I think in The Killer of Me, Clancy, who's her boss, there's a thread with him kind of in it, which is more involved. And so I felt like this book was definitely a book where I wanted Frankie and Baz's story throughout. And it just... It was more at a sense it was going to happen, but I don't like to look at it too closely because I want to see how it might unfold as I'm kind of following the plot. But at the beginning, it kind of became clear that, yes, we're going to have kind of a falling away of everything. You know, the book, one of the big themes in the book is time. So there's a clock with the game. So there's a time pressure to solve it. But also Frankie and Baz's relationship have got to a level where something had to happen and that. And he begins to kind of, almost pull away so she's got this inside there's kind of this desperate feeling that things are slipping out of her reach all the time first this celebrity case then obviously the murder box comes in that's on a completely puts Dublin on a playing field that she doesn't understand and then her partner seemingly begins to kind of pull away too so there's this feeling of things fracturing under her feet and a kind of lack of control happening, which with Frankie and her character is not never a good mix. She likes to be in control. So I think it was kind of both at the same time where the themes that I wanted to investigate in the book and the plot going forward, 
just moved their storyline along naturally. But I, just to be very honest, I had a sense. So maybe some of my subconscious was probably driving, okay, I know that maybe something needs to happen at this point. So maybe I was kind of pointing the story naturally in that direction. But, you know, when I was writing, say, the third book, the book before this, no, that didn't come into my head that, okay, yeah, the next stage is this is going to happen in their relationship. It was more just deciding of the themes in that story and where Frankie was emotionally and then how the book might progress and where all the other characters are in relation to her emotional journey. So it is more that her journey kind of drives the narrative and the rest of the characters you're kind of going well where they are how's that going to affect them and vice versa so yeah I wish I was more of a planner <laughs> no I don't, I don't think you need to be because I think your books work fantastically well I just I'm just fascinated because everybody has a different approach so it's just interesting hearing how you came up with it so speaking of which you touched on it earlier on you said at the moment you're working on your fifth book so can you tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment or is it all still terribly top secret um again because I never want to look directly at the <laughs> the plot at this point I kind of want to keep moving forward without kind of making firm decisions I can't talk massively only that it is a standalone this one so it's out of the series and it's set in the UK so at the moment uh, yeah I'm kind of knee deep in it at the moment and charging forward that's so exciting Uh, yeah it's exciting it's different it's a challenge because it's different it's outside of the other characters which I'm enjoying a lot but also strange you know because you know, I've written four of the Frankie books now. And it, it is just crazy when you kind of look the other way, how ideas for the series begin to bubble up. So that that's happening a lot. I'm going, no, you have to wait until I finish <laughs> Project, you know write them down write them down yes. oh I can't wait I, I know it'll be fantastic um well time has completely shot by we've been chatting for so long but it's been so lovely thank you so much for coming on the podcast I've been wanting to have you as a guest for ages so I'm so pleased I got you as a guest and uh, best of luck with your new book but um for anybody that hasn't read any of Olivia's books they absolutely have to um, the murder box is my total favorite but thanks so much for your time thank you Sarah it's been a pleasure All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.